You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 68. This week, I would like to thank Patrick, Justin, Oscar, and J.R.O. for supporting this podcast on Patreon, which you can as well at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to get access to some pretty cool special episodes. I would also like to thank Neil for his donation this week. Last week, the Germans were finally on the attack, after waiting weeks for the weather to cooperate with their plans. On the first day, the Germans had been cautious in their advance against shattered French opposition, and on the second day, they pushed harder. Along most of the front, they encountered little resistance, although the French did manage to fight back in several areas. On the first day, this resistance had had its successes, but on the second, what was left of the French front lines had fallen, and that is the point in which we take up our narrative today. Today we will look at the third and fourth days of fighting, before looking at one incident that happened on the fifth day. That incident is the fall of the mighty fortress of Douaumont, the largest and best fort in the entirety of the Verdun complex. How and why it fell is a hell of a story, and for those expecting some story of a heroic assault upon steadfast defenders, I'm afraid you may be disappointed. One thing to keep in mind today, and for the next several episodes, is that there was generally fighting all along the entirety of the Verdun front almost every day, but I'm not going to take time to touch on each of these actions in the podcast, so there's just sort of a background of fighting always happening when we're talking about events. The night between the 23rd and 22nd of February was brutally cold. Across the battlefield, the wounded were either in constant agony, or they succumbed to their wounds and the cold. The fighting and confusion of the first two days meant that the 72nd Division had almost ceased to exist, and was certainly no longer a coherent fighting force. One lieutenant would signal to his commander that, quote, The commanding officer and all company commanders have been killed. My battalion is reduced to approximately 180 men from 600. I have neither ammunition nor food. What am I to do? End quote. Somehow, even in their greatly reduced numbers and with their isolation, there were still counterattacks happening. Often these units were small, sometimes as small as half-platoons, but they were counterattacking on their own initiative. Most of these attacks were completely futile, and I'm not sure I can place much blame on the young junior officers who were often ordering them. They were following the standing French orders of the day, and also they probably were not positive on how bad the situation was for the French front as a whole. Some of these units probably did not receive any news from anywhere other than right in front of them and behind them for days, and might have assumed that everybody else was holding out just fine, and it was only their unit that was the problem. 
One of the larger counterattacks was made by Major Bertrand, who attempted to counterattack back into the Bordecare, where Drian and his men had been destroyed the previous day. Three battalions were supposed to go in on the attack, but when the time came, only one of them had received the proper orders before the time of the attack. With just one battalion trying to attack against a numerically superior foe, it turned into a disaster. Even though some counterattacks met with disappointing results, the French defenders managed to hold out in several places. Sometimes it was a small unit, sometimes it was only a machine gun nest, but they still fought on. One area of stubborn resistance was Beaumont, where the remaining French troops would end up almost fighting to the last man. The French had placed machine guns in many buildings within the town, and any German attack was fought off by these machine guns. The only way for the Germans to root them out was to literally bring the buildings down on top of them with large German artillery bombardments. This and other stubborn defensive actions, while often ending in defeat for the French, did slow the Germans down, and it kept them from fully breaking through the lines. This was really a victory in and of itself when you consider the massive artillery superiority, huge manpower advantage, and general cohesion advantages that the Germans enjoyed. Another side effect of these actions was that it convinced many German commanders that they needed to slow down and reduce their attacking goals. The French were also adapting to the German tactics, and this was particularly felt when it came to the German flamethrowers, which had initially caused so much panic in the French units. Now, after fighting them for several days, the French soldiers were learning how to take advantage of the vulnerability of a man walking around the battlefield with explosive tanks of flammable liquid strapped to his back. The French were also bringing more and more artillery fire from the West Bank to bear on the Germans on the East Bank. This was especially impactful near the river, where after the fall of Braben, the German advance had greatly slowed. The Germans were also running into a problem that was not specific to the actions around Verdun, and this was how to keep moving the artillery and supplies forward over a shattered battlefield. The situation at the end of the third day of fighting was that the Germans were in command of the entire first defensive line, but it looked like maybe, just maybe, due to the problems they were having, the worst was behind the French, and they were starting to hold their ground against the German onslaught. When the 24th of February dawned, everything seemed to be going okay for the French. The to-the-last man defenses of Beaumont and other areas of the front had bought time, the thing that the French needed more than anything else. Even though in many places the French reinforcements found their way into auxiliary lines behind the front, there were still disasters to be had for those that were already there. In some areas, entire units continued to just vanish from the map due to German attacks. Thankfully for the hard-hit men of the 72nd Division, their tour of Verdun was almost over. They were slowly being replaced by the 37th African Division that was now coming into the line. But unfortunately for the men of the 72nd, there was still one more disaster they would, that they would have to take part in before their role in our story was over. And that disaster involves a place called Samanu. The village was held by what was left of the battalion under the command of Colonel... Bernard. Samonu was right on the Meuse, so close to the river that the Germans could only attack on two sides. And it was also within easy range of the French guns on the west bank, which should have been a huge benefit. However, on the night of the 23rd, some French troops who had been retreating through the village informed those behind the line that the village was undefended and had most likely fallen to the Germans. Rumors of this reached all the way up to the 72nd commander, General Baps, 
and he simultaneously was receiving messages from Bernard that he was still in the village and defending it. So for the moment, Baps ignored the rumors that it was in German hands. But then news reached him from another source that it had fallen for sure this time, and he was forced to draft orders for it to be retaken. A critical piece of this order, and really any French counterattack near the river, was coordination with the French artillery. So just after midnight on the 24th, the French artillery opened up. Just as Bernard was preparing to send out another message that he was still holding the village, the shells began to fall. For two hours, the French guns fired for all they were worth, believing that they were dropping hell on the heads of the Germans. But they were instead French troops that were there. Shell after shell fell. First the machine guns on the left flank were destroyed, and then the Germans joined in and also fired at the village. By 3 a.m., all of the firing ceased, and the Germans moved into the town. The French artillery stopped firing, while the German guns moved on to cause havoc among the French massing for their counterattack. Within an hour, the village was firmly in German hands, and would stay like that for some time. By continuing to call it a village, I might be doing a disservice to villages everywhere. With so much shelling from both sides, the village had virtually ceased to exist from a map, and was instead just a few piles of rubble. During most of the fighting up to this point, the French had been forced to move reinforcements forward from the 30th Corps piecemeal, almost just panic moves to keep the line holding. But now, since it was time for the 72nd to leave, it also gives us a good time to step back and take stock of what had happened so far. The 30th Corps as a whole had lost 60% of its men as either dead, wounded, or missing. That's a really bad number. But not nearly as bad as the 72nd and 51st Divisions had it, which were within the 30th Corps. The normal strength of the 72nd and 51st Divisions combined to be somewhere around 26,000 men. During the first four days of the battle, they had lost 192 officers and just over 16,000 men. 10,000 of those losses were prisoners, along with 65 artillery guns and 75 machine guns. So out of 26,000 men from those two divisions, only 10,000 remain active infantry on the front. While this represents horrible attrition, it was not the only problem that was being dealt with by the French commanders. The French had lost their first line, their most completed set of entrenchments around Verdun. The auxiliary line barely had any work completed on it, being ordered by Castelnau in late January. The second line was little better. This meant that the 37th African Division, which was now moving into the line to replace the 72nd, was walking into an impossible situation. They moved forward into a battle in progress, and were asked to hold the line, but they had none of the protection that the 72nd had enjoyed during the first three days of the battle. There were no real trenches, very few fortified strong points, and very little cover, all having been destroyed by German artillery. This meant that when the pressure mounted on the 37th, it was not long until, first in small groups, and then in units, and then mostly as a whole, they began to retreat. And this was not an orderly fighting retreat either, it was a full-on rout. But it's hard not to sympathize with them, though, given the situation that they were in. The result of this situation was that over the course of the 24th, the Germans gained almost as much ground as they had on the first three days combined. The Germans were only stopped when they reached the French line that was anchored on the forts of Douaumont and Vaux. Douaumont will play its role in our story shortly. And Vaux will wait for a while, though, because it is at Vaux during the summer heat of June that the hell of Verdun would reach its peak. 
And so what had started as what looked like maybe a good day for the French had turned into a disaster due to the breaking of the 37th Division. And French morale as a whole was just horrible at this point. The French artillery on the east bank had been almost completely silent throughout the battle, and nothing was worse for the men than to not hear their own guns. They had also been forced from their first and then their second positions by German advances and artillery. Then there was also all of the French wounded that were laying all over the battlefield with no way to help them. Even those wounded who were able to get back behind the lines were still not out of the struggle. At casualty clearing stations all along the front, there were hundreds and hundreds of men awaiting evacuation. The ways in and out of Verdun were nearly closed from fire, so ambulances had great difficulty in trying to get in and out to bring wounded to hospitals behind the front. At the Corps Command, General Critton had almost lost all of his ability to alter the situation at the front, and this was because the 37th had represented his last reserves, all of them. He had nothing left to give. But thankfully, it was during this turbulent time that General Baffourier arrived at the head of his troops, the 20th Corps, the Iron Corps, and he arrived at 10 p.m. to relieve Critton and the men of the 30th Corps. The 20th Corps was coming to the end of a long forced march, which had meant most of their heavy equipment had been left behind, and the men had very little ammunition on their persons. But they were men, and hopefully just their numbers could help stem the tide. On the German side, the evening of the 24th represented another missed opportunity. The French, before the 20th Corps arrived, were the weakest that they might ever be at Verdun. On the night of the 24th, before reinforcements arrived, the road to Verdun was open to the Germans, but they didn't have the strength to take advantage. If they had just a few more divisions of troops, it may have been very different, and now I'd like to call back to Falkenhayn's decision to not give them those divisions. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The rest of this episode focuses around the fortress of Duamon, which was undoubtedly the most powerful fort in the Verdun complex. It stood at the top of a hill so that no matter which direction it was approached from, it was imposing and seemingly impregnable. It had been sighted perfectly, and there was nowhere to hide in the approach from which its guns could not find you. It had been built in 1885, but it had been updated several times, with the most recent modernization occurring in 1913. It was a quarter of a mile wide, and had enough space to hold an entire battalion of men. Around the fort there were 30 solid yards of barbed wire, and then a ditch that was 24 feet deep. Into these ditches were sighted machine guns that can fire from both directions, there was simply no way for infantry to cross this ditch while the machine guns were still firing. The machine gun nests were connected to the main fort by underground tunnels so that reinforcements and supplies could be moved in safely. 
If the attackers somehow managed to get past the ditch, the attackers would find themselves on top of the inner fort, which was a glassy of thick concrete, which was, again, swept by more machine guns. If the attackers then managed to somehow get to the back of the fort, where they might have some chance of getting inside, they would be met by more machine guns and a blockhouse that would be swarming with French infantry. Oh, and of course, through all of this, they would be under fire from the French troops around the fort and from other forts in the chains around Verdun. There was almost no vulnerabilities from the guns that were firing as well, because they were in retracting turrets. There was one turret that was that contained a 155mm gun, one turret that contained two twin 75mm guns, three machine gun turrets, and four observation domes. These could be knocked out by direct hits from German artillery, but even then it didn't make the fort more vulnerable, since they were generally would get stuck in the retracting position, from which they spent most of their time. To defend against the expected German artillery, there was four feet of reinforced concrete, which was on top of several feet of earth designed to absorb the impact to prevent it from affecting the next four feet of reinforced concrete that was underneath. This meant that even when the Germans brought up their 420mm howitzers, or their newer 380mm howitzers, which they had used in Belgium to such great effect, it didn't really make much of a dent on Duamon. The guns could have gotten through the concrete eventually, probably, but it would have been a slow grinding process that would have taken a long time, sort of like a, a jackhammer or something. Duomont was, for all intents and purposes, almost impossible for the Germans to take if it was properly manned. But of course, since I said that very specific sentence, and from the previous discussions of the fort's deprioritization, it was not properly manned. At full strength, the fort could have had a battalion of troops, but on the 25th of February 1916, at the height of the German attack at Verdun, it had precisely 60 people in it. Most of the men and most of the machine guns had been taken out months before the battle started, and at the beginning of the battle, General Hare had ordered that it be prepared for demolition in case it fell into German hands. However, the French couldn't even get this part right, because the engineer that was supposed to arrange the demolition charges was lost en route to the fort. Also, in what was another poor French decision, the forts around Verdun remained under the direct command of Hare and his staff, instead of passing to the commanders of that part of the line. This would have allowed for the fort and its crew to be put under the command of the officers on the scene, and it would have greatly increased the coordination between the fort and the infantry surrounding it. This, in turn, would have prevented the next mistake made by the French, which left the fort not only severely undermanned, but also completely undefended from the hills surrounding it. When the men of the 20th Corps moved into the line, they were supposed to man the defenses on both sides of Fort Duamont. However, there was some confusion, and instead of moving up to the fort, they stopped at the village, which just so happened to also be named Duamont, which was located quite a ways behind the fortress. This mistake is sort of understandable. For troops to be confused by two places with the same name while they moved into an area which I doubt had really any signage on the roads after the, all of the artillery, and which was, you know, completely unrecognizable due to artillery, I mean, I'd be confused too. And it was not like the troops could not see the fort either, but they believed that it was already well defended and they did not need to worry, which would not have happened if local commanders were put in charge of defending it. 
It's a real shame that the defenders of the Ford were, were done such a disservice, because the, up to this point, the Ford had held up perfectly well against everything the German artillery had thrown at it. There had been some large damages for sure, but most of this was on the outside, on the surrounding defenses, and not on the core of the fort itself. But unfortunately for the 60 men inside, while the fort was holding up, it was completely vulnerable to the coming German assault. Although I'm not sure you can really call it an assault, because the word assault generally implies some sort of fighting and struggle and maybe some shooting, which there wasn't really much of. While we know that the French were very weak, I just spent an entire paragraph describing how weak they were. The Germans did not know that, and because of this, they stopped their attacks on the 24th, about 750 yards from the fort, so that they could get ready for what they assumed would be a huge effort. The men nearest Duamon were the 24th Brandenburg Regiment, and they had encountered almost no resistance, because this is one of those areas where the 37th Division had almost completely broken during the attack. The 24th Brandenburgers had actually meant to get closer to the fort, but they realized that the units that were supposed to be advancing on their left and right were not keeping pace, so they had to stop. This, however, did not stop three small groups of Germans from approaching the fort on the 25th of February. One of these was a small section of pioneers led by Sergeant Coons. Coons had decided to move forward with his ten men, because they were receiving no resistance from the French, and so his goal was to advance until resistance of some kind was met, and then he would stop. He only had ten men. I'm sure that they were bewildered when there was still no resistance to them all the way up to the fort, which they found themselves up against after making their way through, very slowly, the barbed wire entanglements. The second obstacle that they encountered was a series of high spiked railings, which would have prevented them from going any further, except for the fact that they had found a hole that had been previously created by German artillery. This allowed the pioneers to make their way down into the ditch, which, as I mentioned before, should have been a death trap, but instead they found it undefended, even though it was obvious to Kuntz and his men where the French defenders should have been killing them from. The men then lifted Coons into one of the embrasures in the fort, which was supposed to be used by French to fire out of, which was far off the ground, and they had to use a human pyramid to reach that high. Coons moved around to a nearby steel door, which he opened to allow his men to enter with him, although apparently at this point most of them decided that they didn't want to do that and went back to the German lines. Kuntz and the men that went in with him moved forward until they reached the 155mm turret, which was manned by four men who were firing the gun. All of these men were captured by Kuntz. Now, they were able to escape down the maze-like corridors, but next, Kuntz came upon 20 defenders, all in one room, and he was able to slam the metal door and lock it from the outside. He then moved on to find another French soldier, who took him to the officer's mess hall, the story goes that Coons then sat down and ate some eggs and some other food that he found, although there's some debate on whether or not this actually happened. There's even some debate about the veracity of Coons's story once he gets into the fort in total. However, while Coons's actions were or were not happening, another group of Germans was approaching under the command of Lieutenant Radke. Radke and his men had moved to the fort a little ways away from where Coons had, had approached, and instead of entering into the bowels of the fort, Radka instead moved over the top of the fort, managing to find their way in the backside and capturing three soldiers. Now, right as the French were telling him that there were only 60 defenders, 
another group of Germans arrived. This group was under the command of Captain Haupt. His group had followed just five minutes behind Radkiss, and he found the same place where Radkiss' group had made their way through the defenses and across the ditch. Radkiss' group had even went to the effort of piling some nearby timbers up to make it easier to move across the ditch. And when the two of them met on top of Duamon, which was at the point that Haupt, as a senior officer, took command. Knowing the importance of the fort, Haupt quickly organized a defense in case of a French counterattack, and soon the fort was well within German hands, and also well defended. The three groups of Germans had suffered almost no casualties in what little fighting there was within the fort, which is shocking because even as undermanned as the fort was, it should have been easily able to defend for at least a little while. However, other than the gunners in the 155 turret, which Coons had neutralized, most of the defenders were deep in the fort at the time of the attack, because even though the 420mm guns did not do much damage to the concrete defenses, the explosions still made the upper areas of the fort uncomfortable to be in. Also, you may be wondering this whole time while the, why the Germans were freely able to move around on top of the fort and around it. There were other French units in forts nearby and in other defenses. Should they not have been shooting? Well, it was a foggy day, and this made it difficult to precisely identify what was happening at the fort. Because of this, most of the French observers around, who could see men moving around, did not think that they were Germans because the fort was not firing at them. The assumption was that it might be just French soldiers out of the fort trying to repair defenses. Anyway, regardless, if they were enemies, the fort would be firing at them, right? Even the German generals would write after the fact that the fall of the fort was a complete fluke and a lucky accident for the Germans. But this happy accident would have effects far greater than just its effect on the battlefield, because the capture of Duamon would be the headline of almost all German newspapers the next day. The news of the fort's capture began to spread up the French chain of command soon after it was in German hands. One of the first to know about it was General de Bonneval, who commanded troops near the fort. He believed that with the fort taken, the positions on either side of the fort were untenable, and he ordered a withdrawal of all troops on the front around Duamon. De Castelnau then received the news after he had rushed to Verdun to try and help organize the defense. The Germans, of course, wasted no time in publicizing the event. They even dropped leaflets over the French lines that read, Duamon has fallen. All will soon be over now. Don't let yourselves be killed for nothing. This, along with all of the events of the previous four days, spread panic through the French troops at Verdun. The news would then reach the French newspapers on the 26th. The French high command would try and soften the blow by focusing on how many men the Germans must have lost in the attack on the fort. And in response for comment from the press, the French high command would release a statement. Quote, A bloody struggle took place around the fort of Duamon, which is an advanced element of an ancient organization of Verdun. The position was taken in the morning by the enemy after numerous fruitless assaults. This They cost very high losses and was passed by our troops who repulsed all of the attempts of the enemy to throw them back. So, just complete fabrication. No amount of spinning the facts, though, could change the facts on the ground that the Germans had advanced 10 kilometers in some areas at Verdun, and now they had captured the crown jewel of the Verdun defenses— the city of Verdun was now officially evacuated, and the French hopes at Verdun reached a new low. 
It would take the arrival of the man who would soon become the hero of Verdun to begin restoring those hopes. Patan was on the way, and Patan would save the day.